Good morning. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible, uh, please raise your hand and the ushers will come around and give one to you. Today's reading is Psalm 86 and it can be found on page 421. And for those that don't know me, uh, my name is Andrew. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call you. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you, for you will answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of the grave. The arrogant are attacking me, O God. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. Men without regard for you. But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Uh, well, I'll ask you please to keep your Bibles open at Psalm 86 and also to take out the uh, little handout that you're given as you came in. There's a little outline on the back uh, with an overview of what I'm going to talk about and also a couple of other Bible passages that you'll have find useful to have in front of you there. Um, it has uh, been lovely to be with you these last three weeks and uh, to see the way in which uh, another one of the Trinity churches is seeking to make the most of every opportunity uh, to reach those around us with the good news about Jesus. Um, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's, as I said at the start, it's lovely uh, every time I come here, both seeing uh, old friends as well as those who I've not met before, which is a wonderful testimony to God's goodness to us. Uh, we've been looking these last three weeks at Psalms 84, 85 and 86. Uh, the last two Psalms, 84 and 85, were of the sons of Korah, but today you'll have noticed from the top of uh, page 421 that we come to a prayer of David. A prayer of David. I'm sure you can tell it was a deeply personal psalm, a deeply personal prayer of his. Uh, every verse, apart from verses 5, 8 to 10 and 15, so almost every verse mentions I or me. Uh, but uh, you'll remember that what I've been trying to say each week, that the key to the psalms... Uh, well, let's see. I haven't filled in the blanks this week. This could be depressing, but let's see. The key to the Psalms. What's the key to the Psalms for us as Christians? Someone? What they tell us about God, not, not what we're first and foremost to do. That's right. The Psalms are first and foremost a description of what God is like 
uh, not what we are to do. And the reason for that, of course, is, well, you and I, we are not Jews living hundreds of years before Jesus, the question of relevance. Uh, But equally, if you want to know what God is like in the end, you have to get to the Lord Jesus. And so the Psalms point us towards him. Uh, Someone came up to me after the talk last week and said that they found it really helpful the way in which um, I tried to show how you move from the Psalms to Jesus to us. And so I've done exactly the same thing today. You'll see that on the handout. Firstly, what Psalm 86 says about God. And secondly, how it points us towards Jesus. And thirdly, what it has to say about us today. Well, firstly, what Psalm 86 says about God. Let me read the first seven verses for us. Verse 1, hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You're forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call on you. So hear my prayer, O Lord, listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you, for you will answer me. Like the last two psalms, there aren't particular details given about David's situation, although you can work out something of what's going on. Verse 2, guard my life. In some way, his life is in danger. If you drop down to verse 14, the arrogant are attacking me, a band of ruthless men seeks my life. (coughs) Uh, Ruthless people, it seems, uh, are after David. We don't know the exact circumstances, but regardless, his prayer is pretty straightforward. His prayer, God, hear me, listen to me, help me, answer me, save me. The reason David is confident that God will intervene is because David is God's faithful servant. Verse 2, say, you are my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Uh, In fact, David says that he has served God, Uh, look at verse 16, over the page, verse 16, Um, grant your strength to your servant, save the son of your maidservant. Um, Maidservant is probably actually reference to his mother, Uh, David's referring to the fact that he has served God since birth, Uh, in fact he has been raised to love the Lord by his own parents. David therefore expects that God will help him because David is God's servant. And masters look after their servants. There are some benefits to service, it seems. The difficulty for us, I think, is that when you hear the word servant, you don't hear servant, you hear slave. So it sounds like it's an unequal relationship. Uh, In fact, not a very good relationship. And that's when we hear the word slave, of course, it imports all sorts of meaning and imagery to us. But that's not the case. Not for David. The word servant, servant is one who is loyal to his master. And so, in turn, expects that his master will protect him. A better image, I think, uh, this is from feudal times, is of a baron or a lord who looks after those under his care. Uh, Yes, they do his will but they do it knowing that he will look after them. To be fair, when a servant asks a master to intervene, it's up to the master as to the nature of that intervention, as to what exactly the master chooses to do. 
but for David, the servant. The key, the confidence <coughs> excuse me, that God will intervene is based on what God is like. He is a good master. And you see that in the middle part of Psalm 86. Point two, among the gods, there is none like you. Pick it up with me in verses 8 through 10. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Now, if you look at verse 8, you'll realize that David acknowledges that there are other gods. Other people of the time were polytheists. They believed in other gods, unlike today, of course, where most people are atheists. They don't believe in any gods. But at that time, they were polytheists. So in saying, as David does, among the gods there is none like you, in saying, all the nations you have made will come and worship you, in saying, you alone are God, David is declaring the unparalleled supremacy of his Lord. He's saying that his God is the only one that counts. And of course, uh, that's the whole reason, I presume, why he bothers asking for help. If I can put it this way around, not much point in asking a semi-powerful deity to help you out, is there? You want someone who you know is powerful, who actually rules, has control. And the contrast, I think, that's been drawn here between David's God and the pagan gods of the time, the other gods, well, in the end, all they do is they look out for their own interests. They use people as their slaves and then discard them when they're no longer of any use to them. The basis of David's request to God for help is what God is like. And you'll have noticed there that in verses 8 through 10, um, apart from a couple of other um, mentions, verse 5 and verse 15, in verses 8 through 10, David doesn't once mention himself. There is no I or me in this very centre, the heart of the psalm. It's as if David's own situation, David's own circumstances have faded from view. They're secondary. What matters in the end is that there are no other gods like his Lord. And so we come to part three, point three then, David's prayer, part two. You see, he started by calling on his master to help him. Then he acknowledged that his Lord is unlike any other. Part three though, uh, part two, he comes back to pray again but his prayer is a bit different. His prayer is that God might work in David, not for him. That first section, David's need for God's help. The second section, God's supremacy. The third section, David prays a different prayer. See if you can spot it. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I'll glorify your name forever, for great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of the grave. 
The arrogant are attacking me, O God. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, men without regard for you. But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me, have mercy on me, grant strength to your servant, save the son of your maidservant. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Uh, True, David still does want God to intervene. David still does want God to do something for him. But verse 11 is a much bigger prayer. It's a prayer that God might work in David, not just for him. It's a prayer that David might rely on God's faithfulness and fear God's name. Rely on God's faithfulness and fear God's name. Let me say something about each of those things for just a moment. Uh, Firstly, in verse 11, when it says, uh, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name, Uh, fear your name, I don't think, implies be terrified, to cower in abject fear. I don't think that's what it means. I say that because clearly David has a very intimate relationship with God. Uh, Verse 15, he will describe God as being gracious and compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness. These are not the words of someone who is terrified of God. Rather, to fear his name, I think, means to have the right concerns, the right priorities, the right voices in our heads that determine how we live. To fear God's name, I think, is a prayer that we might be like-minded. That we might be like-minded with God, in fact. That we might have the right character and the right convictions, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. David, I think, is asking for God's help that he might not worry about anything other than God's honour and glory that he might not be concerned for anything other than to plagiarise another prayer, that God's name might be hallowed, that his kingdom might come, that God's will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. I presume you can see that in praying, God, help me fear your name, this is a much bigger prayer than simply God save me. This is a prayer that's asking God to conform us to his image, to his likeness, to his desires. It's a prayer that God might change our hearts and our character even more than our circumstances and situation. It's a prayer for God's work in us, not just for us. (coughs) And perhaps that's uh, why verse 11, uh, the first part, is so key. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Um, uh, what David is uh, asking at this point um, is that he might in the end depend on God's faithfulness. This is a prayer that he might not be tempted to depend on himself, uh, that he might never turn to any of those other gods. I mean, why would you in the end if his Lord is supreme above all? Which raises a tricky question. Why do we find ourselves tempted to look elsewhere? Why do we find ourselves tempted to look elsewhere? 
even though we know that our God is God over all. On the end, I think part of it is because we're impatient. We think that our timing is more important than God's. And I think in the end, because we think we know better than God. That we know what would be right for us. In that context, I think verse 15 is a timely reminder of God's goodness. You, Lord, are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And that's probably the reason why I think in verse 11, David has wisely prayed, Lord, give me an undivided heart. An undivided heart. So that he might be able to continue to trust in God's power and God's goodness, even when God's deliverance is not forthcoming. Isn't that when you're most tempted to stop fearing his name, to start questioning him and his priorities? When he doesn't answer immediately? Or when he doesn't answer the way in which you want him to? I talked before about uh, our students uh, who, from tomorrow morning, are going to walk onto campus wearing a bright red jumper that identifies themselves as Christians. That's pretty confronting for some of them. Last year, one of our new students um, <clears throat> was pretty nervous about it, and I was talking to him the day before and said, so you're going to wear your jumper tomorrow? And he said, you know, I've been thinking about this. I know I should, but I'm a little bit nervous. He's standing there in front of me wearing a Collingwood jumper. Uh, he's from Victoria, moved here to study. And I just looked at him and said, what are you worried about? You're prepared to wear a Collingwood jumper in South Australia. And he said, yeah, fair enough. It is tempting for us, isn't it? Sometimes we find ourselves worrying more about what others think. Uh, David's prayer in Psalm 86 is a wonderful reminder that in the end, the commendation of our master, that's what we live for. What Psalm 86 says about God. Point two, very briefly then, how Psalm 86 points us to Jesus. Uh, Jesus, some thousand years after David, is descended from David. He's a king like David, in David's line. But Jesus, of course, is a king who trusts God completely. He's committed to doing God's will, even to his own death. And the consequence of that, of course, is that he now is the one who is worthy of eternal glorification and praise because he has been obedient to his master's will. I printed there for you a famous passage from Philippians 2. I'm not going to read it all. Uh, you know it well. I just want to pick it up in verse 9 because we usually look at the first few verses to describe what Jesus has done, whereas the last few verses describe what God will do for Jesus. Verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above that it, sorry, gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> because of what Jesus has done he now is supreme. 
uh, among the gods, there is none like the Lord Jesus. And he will be exalted forever and ever. And that conviction is what ought to shape our priorities now. We know it'll happen. He will be exalted forever and ever. He was dead. He is now alive. And the only thing that remains is for never-ending praise to be given to him who deserves it. This is what we live for. And this is what we look forward to. And so point three then, what does Psalm 86 say to us today? Uh, I printed there for you on your handout some words from this king, from this descendant of David, from this Jesus. Uh, You'll know them well uh, because they're very famous. From Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I don't actually want to talk about money, so don't worry about that. Uh, Although, I did once hear this verse described as the most disbelieved verse in the Bible. The most disbelieved verse in the Bible. Uh, The person who was speaking said that um, most Christians he knows thinks and acknowledge that money can be distracting, but only for other people. Never for themselves. Uh, So I don't actually want to talk about money, but I do want to talk about the idea of distraction, of having a divided heart, not an undivided one. Because I think that's one of the powerful images from Psalm 86. God, give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Now, each week I tried to give you a picture, an image that might resonate in your mind. This one's going to be disturbing. If you have a look on the other side of your handout, I've given you a picture there of some strange bloke who's decided to marry two women. Now, they're just, it's not real, right? They're just pictures there. But I put the picture there because your heart cannot love two things if both demand exclusivity. Do you get that? Your heart cannot love two things if both demand exclusivity. It is ludicrous to imagine that you could love both entirely. We do not have the capacity to do that. And what Jesus says is that if you love something less when it demands full devotion, Jesus, who's not one to mince words, he says, you hate that other thing. If you love that which demands full devotion less than what it is entitled to, Jesus says, you hate it. So I think Psalm 86 gives rise to two practical prayers for you and I today. Here they are. In asking God to give us an undivided heart, here are the two practical prayers. Firstly, God, in this week, help me love you more. And God, in this week, help me love everything else less. 
Help me love you more and help me love everything else less. This second prayer is very hard to pray because God fills our lives with good things. They are a gift from him. But it can be tempting to be distracted to love the gifts more than the giver. Actually, Jesus has another word for that. He calls that idolatry. So in this week ahead, God, help me love you more and help me love the things that are still good just a little bit less. There's a question at the bottom of the handout, and with this I finish. Um, How do you know if you have an undivided heart? How do you know if you have an undivided heart? I found myself deliberating over this this week. I wondered what test you could order, what scan you could have run to determine if you have an undivided heart. Well, thankfully, Psalm 86, I think, gives a clue. Look with me at it one last time. Verse 12. Having prayed in verse 11, God, give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Verse 12, I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. How do you know if you have an undivided heart? Well, Psalm 86, I think, hints at one way of telling. You tell if you're willing to praise God with all your heart which isn't just a measure of the intensity of your praise. That's not just what all your heart means. To praise God with all your heart, I think, means in every circumstance. To praise God not just when it's easy, not just when you feel like it, not, not just when it comes naturally. To praise God even when he doesn't grant your material requests. I'm not saying that Christians ought be Naive, happy-go-lucky, deny the reality of hardship and suffering. Clearly, that is real and for many of us, actually that's probably a stronger, more powerful definition of what our circumstances are like now. But Psalm 86 is a reminder that whatever our situation, we are to constantly praise God. Why? Well, because we're planning to glorify his name forever anyway. So we might as well get started doing that which we are going to spend eternity rejoicing in. As you go from here uh, into your week ahead, uh, let me encourage you. Uh, I think that we Christians have a better story to tell than the world around us does when it comes to the topic and the inevitability of suffering and of hardship. I think we have a better story to tell than those around us as they try to make sense of a world that, to be, to be frank, at times makes no sense to many. Here's our story. We have a powerful God who loves us. He is worthy of our praise. And I think that if those with whom we share our lives hear of both the reality of our struggles and the conviction of our hope, Perhaps they might want to meet this God too. You join me in praying?
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you answer our prayers. Above all, you answered our prayer for forgiveness in the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We look forward to the day in which every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord of all. And certain of that confidence, we ask that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in now, you might give us an undivided heart that we might fear your name. Amen.